Hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 223. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's guest, uh, Greg Kosmicki, is here. He'll be with us in a few minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do all this every week because we love poetry. And I know you do too because you're listening and watching right now. So please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed, ring the bell, uh, leave reviews on iTunes or Spotify or Amazon Music, anywhere you're listening to this later or at the right present moment. I guess it's always now while you're watching it right now. Um, please do like do something, click something to help spread poetry around the internet because that is our mission here at Rattle um, to promote the practice of poetry and you can help promote it too. Now we like to start out with the prompt poem. Um, this, week's, or this week's prompt poet is Arthur Russell and you might remember Arthur was on as the main guest uh, back in September and you might remember from that that he had the um, Brooklyn Poets uh, group reading event every Monday night at the exact same time as the Rattlecast. So he was missing that one for this. And um, and uh, so he's there right now and can't be here to join us. But he is sharing that poem um, probably right now as we speak. It's from 8 to 9 in Brooklyn every uh, Monday night. He's probably reading this poem there too. But he couldn't join us because of that event that he has. But we're going to share his poem anyway. And here it is uh, right now. It was Gravity in Jerusalem. And um, I'll read his uh, note at the bottom first. This is what he had to say about it. It's a topic that, you know, most poems submitted for the last you know, month or two have been written about this. And uh, here's another poem which we try to find different ways to cover, you know, the topics that we cover with, through poetry. And uh, this is Arthur Russell's take on it. I have been preoccupied since October 7th with the tragic events in Israel and Gaza, preoccupied, sometimes embattled, and sometimes collapsing into a conflicting, conflicted form of despair. I hear little bits of news and my emotions swing one way and then other news, not necessarily conflicting new, that urges my heart and my rage and my despair in a new direction. Often, too, I feel disqualified by my distance from the reality, from having any feelings at all, and retreat to the emblems of my own spirit, my own morality, and my inheritance. And so, um, you know, Arthur himself is Jewish. And uh, that's part of the conflict, if you remember from his book. Um, he was the Chapbook winner from the Rattle Chapbook Prize from At the Car Wash. And this is his poem um, in response to those conflicted feelings, Gravity in Jerusalem. So let's give it a listen. Um, I'll let Arthur read. Gravity in Jerusalem. I wanted to grow up to be a rain cloud over an upstate reservoir during a drought. Then... It was my ambition to become a slender woman, or a book jacket cut from a grocery bag, or a trumpet, or a garden rake, or a handkerchief embroidered with a strawberry heart. The evenings were much longer then. I wanted to be a satchel with latches that slid sideways to open a cutting board bearing the wounds of nutrition on my back, the scratchy absolution of a dollar bill passing through the coin slot of a charity tin at the cashier of a candy store. Like the colors in comic books when comic books were printed on fool's cap, my irises would dilate for the dishwasher light in the darkened kitchen and contract at the open refrigerator door. 
the brass drain in the kitchen sink scrubbed with persistence to a low brass glimmer was my art school. It whispered, we are brass kin and you are me in human form. I wanted to grow up to be the lavender soap in a lingerie drawer or the handgun under the cable-knit tennis sweater on the top shelf of the front hall closet. I envied the moldings around doorways and wanted, more than friendship, to crawl inside a mezuzah, to read its scrolls in seclusion, and to emerge from my cell like morning in Manhattan, with muted light on the brick facade of an apartment house. I wanted to marry. I wanted to marry a book of matches once, to have children like misaligned wallpaper seams and teach them how to blow their noses and spit up phlegm and how to fit a square god in a round soul and how to see all fathers as bags of donated clothing waiting by the door. There is more light in a glass doorknob than gravity in Jerusalem. And that was Arthur Russell, once again with Gravity in Jerusalem. For more of Arthur's work, definitely pick up a copy of his chapbook, um, at the car wash, um, but a wonderful poem just with the great rich images there and the, the, you know, the symbolic meaning that reaches farther than what you can even articulate. I'm not sure what that wonderful last line means. There's more light in a glass doorknob than gravity in Jerusalem, but you can feel the meaning in it, and that's why it's just a wonderful poem. So thanks to Arthur for uh, sharing that. He's been writing a lot of great poems lately. Once again, Arthur Russell with Gravity in Jerusalem, our uh, Poetry Spawn poet this week. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, uh, guest uh, Greg Kosmicki. So sit tight, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Like I said, today's guest is Greg Kosmicki, uh, one of the all-time you know, favorite poets of Rattle. We've always loved his poems. A typical you know, old-fashioned Rattle style. I like to think of it with down-to-earth voice and uh, just wonderful real storytelling about life which is what rattle was founded to provide and uh, you know alan always loves when i bring uh, greg's poems to the meetings uh, greg kosmicki is a poet and a retired social worker who lives uh, now in alpine california he founded backwaters press in 1997 and he now serves as the editor emeritus there greg's poetry has been published in numerous publications since 1975 all over the place um, including the Paris Review and many others. He's received fellowships for the Nas- Nas- Nebraska Arts Council. Um, his poems appear on Writer's Almanac. He's had 13 books and chapters of poems. And his most recent is right here, um, We Eat the Earth. And so that's what we're reading from today. Um, his last collection, As Good Here As It Gets, from Logan House, was a finalist for the 2017 High Plains Book Award. Um, and he's wife and wife, Debbie, um, now live in Alpine, California. Here he is. Uh, Greg Kosmicki. Hi, Greg. Good to see you. Hi, Jim. Good to see you. 
Yeah, I think we might have met once very briefly at an event, but I think that's the only time. And just Maybe. saying Maybe. saying hi. And so it's great to great to talk to you because I've been reading your poems, which feel so much like you for so long. I think the first issue you were in was like number twenty nine or something, um, and uh, there's been a good number of poems ever since. Um, so so it's great to see you. Thank you. Good to see you too. Uh, do you want to start out uh, with a poem? Let's start with a Sunday walk from early in the book. Okay, and thanks for inviting me on too. Yeah, definitely my pleasure. Thanks for sending this book. The Sunday Walk. At the intersection, I watch left because I'm walking against the light. And when I get across, the guy in the second row of the left turn lane starts honking like crazy. God, he's really impatient. The light has barely changed. The woman in the car in front of him edges out her SUV into traffic. But the guy keeps honking. The guy in the right lane lays on the horn. I think he's honking at the other guy to show him what a prick he's being. The car behind him starts honking too. Then they're all joining in to, sh to shame the horn honking guy, too impatient to wait a second at the light. Cars clear across the intersection, join in, four or five cars honking, horns going everywhere, no car moves. Then the second guy to have started honking jumps out of his car, runs across the intersection, to the left. Holy shit, there's going to be a fight. I look up across the intersection to see a kid in diapers wobble into the street. A woman in a slip with two other babies in her arms runs out into traffic from between two apartment buildings. The man picks up the toddler, hands her little boy to her. From somewhere, someone shouts at her, can't you take care of your fucking baby? And that was Sunday Walk by Greg Kazmicki from his newest book, uh, We Eat the Earth, that just came out over the summer. And uh, a beautiful cover on that book, too. I love the, the colorfulness of that. Um, and that's such a, it's such a um, sort of Greg Kazmicki-type poem to start with. Because I, I imagine so often the poems we've published of yours start off with you walking somewhere. They start with a walk to the or, kitchen or sometimes. Or one of the two. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about your, your writing process and how it's a part of your life? Well, I, I think that uh, I've been writing like that since I started. Uh, um, I I kind of wander around and look for stuff that uh, might might turn into a poem and and um, just start writing about it. And then I uh, usually there's uh, something in it that uh, I don't realize is there. Because uh, if I guess if a poem is doing its work, that's what that's what happens. You know, that you you find out something you didn't know before. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And do you do you tend to write the poem the same day? Like, because you know, there's I I love that. Um, whenever I peel an orange poem too, it starts out with you going to the kitchen to peel an orange and the memories that that brings up. Uh, that we published, I think that was issue thirty three, maybe. Yeah, um, thank you. And um, and do you write it like right then? Or is it something that you sort of lodge away as like, oh, this was a reverie that started when I was doing this and I'm going to write about it later? Uh, how, how does that work? Well, actually, excuse me, with that one particular poem, Whenever I Peel an Orange, I, I wrote that out uh, two different times, which is very uncharacteristic for me. And I wrote and I because I usually sit down and write from start to finish. And if the poem uh, I, ho I hope to get into that space, you know, when you're writing where 
your subconscious takes over and you can kind of shut your your interfering uh, whichever side of the brain it is that's always controlling things, you know, and, and censoring. I try to shut that off just subconsciously. And then, but this one, I, I just had those uh, things that I wrote about in the poem and I, and I realized that they sort of went together. So, and then I realized I was looking through it one night reading it and, and uh, uh, tried putting it into lines. And so, uh, which I've been accused of before too. <laughs> that was one of the few times I ever did it. And, uh, uh, and then I had to tinker with it a little bit here and there to get, get them to fit together. But so yes, the answer is yes or no, depending upon what I was talking about when you start, when you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Let's hear, uh, hear the next poem up uh, is all souls. Okay. All souls. This one's an acrostic poem. It's based upon a painting that's in the um, uh, Joslin Art Museum in Omaha, Nebraska, by after a painting by the same name as uh, by Keith Jacobs Hagen. All Souls. We don't know anything about the blonde housewife wandering the kitchen, desperation in her throat. Plead to her uncle to get off, still fresh after 40 years stifled until her hair silvered gray to match the corrugated tin sheds in the waning light. While the curtain tears and souls like hers escape to wander the universe alone, return to these scenes unbidden. The new wife slicing fresh picked pineapples bloodies her finger and wonders why. The blighted sky funnels a soul the size of Nemaha County into this tiny place, the last blue covered in a certain uncertainty. Her son out front burning branches of dead trees thinks, these are like the arms and legs of the dead in hell. And father's drunk again before the 10 o'clock news. He'll hit her hard with the full weight of the failed crops, his failed life in his fists, right where it shows. He doesn't care. She'll say it's the door again. You know something bad happens here. The seed gone wrong. The tiny house frayed as a ball of lint. The starry outbuildings grandpa and dad built when times were good. It's more than anyone can bear. The burden, the shame, trees, a blood dark rosary of pain. Distance is more vast than the thought of God. The night the souls begin the dark journey under the weight of the crushing sky. And that was All Souls by Greg Kosmicki. Yeah, after a painting of the same name by uh, Keith Jacob Shagan. And uh, from We Eat, the Lo- we Eat the Earth, his newest book. Um, anyway, there's a little bit of it, uh, that poem gets into your work as a social worker, um, maybe, like some of the themes that, that come through that poem. Um, can you explain, you know, how you came to, to be in that work? You worked for 25 years for the state of Nebraska, um, you know, doing that kind of work. Um, what was that and how did it relate to poetry? Like, did you, did you find poetry while doing that, that work or did you find it before, you know, how did the two intermingle and, and how did you end up being a social worker? Well, I started writing poems uh, when I was in high school. So, um, and um, 
I, I didn't ever write much about my work as a social worker because I always felt that it would be a uh, violation of their uh, the people's rights who I, I served in. And it, uh, uh, so I, I just wrote very few poems about uh social work i've got i i always looked at it as i when i when i retired then i can go back and write about that stuff but then i've forgotten what it was <laughs> so it's it's a lot better for me to be right in in the midst of what's going on to write about it it's because things are much fresher but um uh as far as writing about the work i did I, my first my first book um Nobody Lives Here Who Saw This Sky was based upon uh, when I was working as a uh, package delivery person for one of the major uh, companies in the United States. And uh, it was a, a horrible job and because it was physically uh, taxing and, and plus they they manage by negativity, not by positivity. And, and I'm kind of negative anyway, so it didn't help. <laughs> And uh, so I did write a book of poems about from that from that experience. But the rest of the stuff is uh, very few poems have come out of my uh, social work work. Yeah. But how did you end up in that field, though? Because I, I do think there's something related because, you know, poetry, a poem is a kind of empathy machine, you know, and, and in social work, you, you work with your empathy. Um, I did that work just for a couple of years um, as a counselor at a group home for mentally ill adults, kind of between deciding what to do with life and, and ending up with this job at Rattle. That was my job for, for about three years. And um, it takes a lot of the same um, the same sort of energy as poetry, I would say, you know, like there's the way that you're imagining what life is like for other people in order to, to talk to and counsel them, you know, and um, and that's really kind of what a poem is doing, too. Um, and, and so there seems to be like something related to that you fell into that career and being a poet, even though I haven't come across many poets who do that work. So so how did you end up being a social worker? Well, <clears throat> by accident, um, like everything else I've done in my life, uh, I, I uh, when I graduated from Nebraska in 78, I was I was that far away from having my my master's. I thought it turns out I actually had it, but um, I couldn't find work uh, teaching, and so I uh, we moved to California and worked for a year out of my mother-in-law's liquor store out on Mission Beach in San Diego, and then came back to Nebraska and worked for a friend delivering bread, and then I got the job working for uh, uh, the package delivery company. And I mean, I, I've done fifteen or twenty different jobs, and um, when I was 42 or something like that, there was an opening um, uh, in the paper for the job at the state of Nebraska, and I applied for it. And I, the guy, the guy in um, uh, personnel told me I had had veteran status and I was over 40, so that's why I got the job. You know, mm -hmm. So, <laughs> but and um, I'd always wanted to work in adult protective services for years, and finally. The last 12 years that I was working at the state of Nebraska, a job came open and I and I was able to get into that. That was a, a really cool job. And I worked a, worked a lot of uh, I, I have a couple poems came out of working in adult protective services. Mm -hmm. Well, that's and actually I actually lived in a, lived and worked in a group home for four years, too, with my wife, with mentally handicapped um, adult males. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, there's a poem or two came out of that. So. 
So it's really interesting having, you know, worked having that many different experiences. Um, what, what do you say, what would you say is the most um, sort of strangest one that you did or the most, the most memorable, the one that most informed you most as a human being, would you say? Would it be the social work or would it be something else? Well, that's tough. I mean, I, I, I mean, because you learn something every, every day if you're paying attention from every job that you do. I learned a lot about people working for the package delivery company and about about myself too, and I, uh, um, I also uh, learned things about people when I was working with homeless, mentally ill people when I was an adult protective services worker. So, and um, I, I learned uh, about families taking advantage of their parents and grandparents too. So, I mean, every everywhere I've worked, I've learned a lot of stuff. So. Mm-hmm. It's my my life degree, I guess. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, we say we were just talking, I think, last week with Bob Hickok about, uh, you know, <laughs> not going to an MFA and, and having that be your only life experience because you sort of have to, you know, even before you do an MFA program, you have to understand a little bit about life and you can't just have, uh, you know, poetry be the only thing because then you end up sort of in the the swirl of not being original, you know, trying to go along with everybody else. And you definitely do, you definitely do uh, have your poetry is very original. And I think maybe that's part of uh, doing all those different jobs throughout the years. It could be. And I, and I, uh, I wanted to teach when I first started out when I, back in 78, but I, it's a good thing I didn't get a teaching job because I hated school anyway. So, and uh, so I don't know what kind of a teacher I would have been, but probably not that good of a teacher anyway. So, so, well, let's uh, let's hear the next poem. Uh, I think this is the one from from Rattle not too long ago. A hazardous brush with an abnormally extended feeling of well being, which is the title. Yeah, I, I, I think like this was from the humor issue, wasn't it, or something like that? Uh, that's well, maybe it was. I, I don't know. I keep I lose track of which one was where, but, uh, but I, I remember publishing it. <laughs> a hazardous brush with an abnormally extended feeling of well being. Sometimes you can be so happy it's inexplicable driving your car down the freeway, or sitting in your kitchen eating an apple. Or say you just completed a mundane task like putting two stacks of paper into order. It has nothing to do with that, probably. Probably it has nothing to do with anything. You can actually be happy for no real reason, just as you can breathe for no reason, or take a dump for no reason. I mean, other than the obvious reasons. Or maybe it's because you can say reason at least as many times as you'd like at the end of a line for no reason. If somebody tells you you can't be happy, tell them to take a hike. There's no reason not to be, because if you want it to be, it can be. And you don't even have to have a reason to be happy. You can just be kind of like a spider might be happy, sitting up in a corner in her web, trying to think about whether or not she can understand the concept, or even if she cares or not. There's the web and the corner, and somewhere flying toward her, lunch. And somewhere, a poem that ends with the word lunch. Yeah, that's great. Love that ending, too. Thank that you. was Thank a, you. a hazardous brush with an abnormally extended feeling of well-being um, from, from We Eat the Earth. Um, and as we've seen from the three poems we've read so far, uh, your voice is very consistent. I mean, that's the pleasure of reading one of your books, is it feels like you're getting to know and, and talk to Greg Kosmicki uh, directly like there's no you know affectation or you know highfalutin kind of uh, words the vocabulary is just you know written like you talk 
And um, how, how did you develop that style and, and why did you want to write poems that way? Was it a process of, of developing your voice, which is something uh, we wonder about as a poet all the time? Well, uh, back when I first started at school at the University of Nebraska back in 73, I um, uh, had, well, first I started out, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I, I when I was checking out my books at the book the campus bookstore, I looked at a book of torts and I said, oh my God, I am not doing that. <laughs> and so I decided my, I was going to do my second thing was become a, a novelist. And I, I realized after I wanted to be a novelist after I read The Grapes of Wrath and, and, uh, um, and, but that's a lot of work, you know, writing novels, writing poems. I can sit down and write something for 15 minutes or uh, and a half an hour. And I've got sort of a finished product. And so I've been, I've been jotting things like that since around that time, 74, 75, and just writing down whatever pops out. And, um, I'm, I, I kind of tend to belong to that first word, best word school too. And, um, um, uh, so I didn't, that's one thing, actually, of my my poems kind of all sound the same. Was I've been accused of that. And I send somebody a manuscript and they write back and say, your poems all sound exactly the same. You know, <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so but um, so I, I don't know that I, I don't think I ever, you know, developed the style because I just that's just the way I. Uh, I sat down and, and wrote whatever pops out, you know, mm hmm. Were you drawn to poets writing in that style? I mean, there, there's some poets you loved early on that, that led you in that direction of the first word, best word? I Well, I I think probably at the university, um, uh, that's where I first started actually reading contemporary American poems. And um, uh, Greg Kuzma was a big, was my uh, professor in beginning and advanced writing and, and his big push was to get people to read a lot, you know, so that you can see what you can do in poems. And um, I, I read, uh, geez, I, well, Charles Bukowski was a big, a big influence. I, I loved uh, the days run away like wild horses over the hills. And um, I, I think I m maybe picked up from reading him, the, you know, that you can write anything you feel like. And, um, um, but I, uh, Elizabeth Bishop, uh, I, I don't, there, there's been, I've read hundreds of, hundreds of poems mm -hmm. by poets, you know, I, the, it would be silly to start naming names. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, Janthi Rangan in, in notes says, oh, we could we play a game. After Greg reads the title, let's guess what the poem is about. I bet no one will get it right. <laughs> and that's, uh, <laughs> kinda, that's true. You, you can really feel though, that the meditative aspect of the poetry, you know, um, that you're, that you don't know. I mean, it's true, you know, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader, that kind of thing that we always talk about. It, it's, it's just, you can see the way that you're, you know, um, you know, Bob last week was calling it like a performance to, you know, sit down and, and create words and not know where you're going and end up at some destination. And you can see that in your poems too. Uh, do you feel like it's a, a spiritual thing? Um, you know, do you have, are you re religious and does it relate to that at all? Or is it sort of your secular prayer every day? Um, is that something that poetry does for you? 
Well, I, I used to be, I wasn't religious and then I was religious and then I wasn't and then I was. And let me see, I'm on the iteration of I'm, I'm not and, uh, right now. And um, so I, I, I don't really know. I, I don't, I, I try not to think about it too much because it makes me self-conscious. And I found over the years that if I start, if I become self-conscious, like when I'm sitting down, I'm going to write a poem, that thought crosses my mind. Oh, I'm writing a poem, so I've got it sounds like. You know, so I, I try to what I try to do is is um, kind of let the pen move itself and not and not interrupt with thinking per se at all. And just whatever pops up. <laughs> it's a it's a horrible method. But anyway, it works well, I think it's, it's a great method. Um, how what do you do? Do you find yourself like going into ruts where you do feel self-conscious? And if so, how do you get out of that? Well, I, I I decided years ago if you if, if you feel blocked that the best way to get out of a block is to write. So, um, and that I, I read somewhere one time uh, that uh, if you have a, a a block and you're in a rut and you can't write, it's just because you you think so highly of yourself that you you think you can't do better than you did before. You know, and so it's just it's kind of a mental game. I uh, I do know that if I don't if I don't write much. Like, you know, as I've gotten older, I've been letting myself get a lot more distracted by everything that's out there, especially politics. And uh, if I don't write as much, I, I'm not open to it as much. I'm not keeping my feelers out and I'm not. Uh, it, it, it's kind of a painful process to be a poet because you you always got to have your antennas up. And if, if you don't, um, you miss you miss stuff that you could write about. So. Uh, uh, I forget what you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I asked how to be uh, not self-conscious, but I love that. I've never heard that uh, that concept that, uh, that if you're having trouble and you're blocked, it's because you're too proud of what you've written in the past. I think that's a great way to think of it. Yeah, I, just, um, I could never do that well again, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's true. Uh, especially, you know, there's that... Um, you know, the, the, the syndrome of after you graduate, you know, grad school sort of being depressed and stuff. And the same thing happens with a book. You know, you publish a book and you like it and you're like, oh, I could never do that again. And then it's hard to get back into a next one. That sophomore slump is a real issue for writers uh, very often. Uh, let, let's hear the next poem up, uh, Second Story. Okay, this poem um, involves a, a political, I mean, a, a real person, Anne Frank. And uh, I was working at that time for adult protective services. So um, that comes into this poem. And um, it actually is based on an actual walking out into the uh, dining room one morning and seeing Anne Frank was on the, the TV there uh, on, a, on a story. And this is called Second Story. The slogan, Arbeit macht frei, pardon my German, work will make you free was placed at the entrance to a number of Nazi concentration camps. And that was a quote from Wikipedia. <clears throat> Today I was getting ready for work. I just pressed my pants and shirt. I was walking out into the kitchen. I was walking out of the kitchen when I saw Anne Frank. The TV announcer said that she, had she lived, she would have been 84 today. Somewhere, unbelievably, some other human discovered the one piece of movie film a home movie of a cousin's wedding that was a moving picture of Anne Frank looking out of, leaning out of a second story window. 
I don't think she waved, though I would like to think she waved. The movie was taken in the shtetl where the Franks were hiding. The announcer said that Anne Frank would have been 12 years old in the pictures. She's looking out of the window to see her cousin's wedding. One of the heroes of World War II was running the camera and Anne Frank was smiling. She was smiling like Lazarus across this tremendous distance. She would have been waving to us had she known, but all Anne Frank did in those few frames was to smile. I thought I saw her wave a small, shy wave, a hesitant wave, like your kid might wave to you when she saw you getting ready to go to work, when she didn't yet know what work meant, how it could enslave you, how it could set you free. I wish that Anne Frank was 84 years old and that she had plenty to eat and drink. I wish that she would watch Wheel of Fortune or on TV or maybe even get addicted to Survivor. I wish that she had moved to Minneapolis or Omaha, not far from a shul she could walk to if she wanted to. I wish she was sitting in a low-income apartment somewhere in Omaha, her husband having died some 20 years ago and thinking of a recipe for something like mandel bread or a nice soup, something she might offer an unexpected visitor from Adult Protective Services. I wish I could have protected her, that in my job at the state, I could have walked up the front sidewalk and been that visitor, that she would be standing there looking out her second story window and that she would wave to me. Yeah, really touching poem, second story uh, about Anne Frank from... Uh from We Eat the Earth, and another great example of just how your mind moves through poems. And again, we start with the walking, not knowing where it's going to go, um, and then we go to the Anne Frank and, and the, the reverie and thoughts about that. So it does feel like such a meditative process that you write with. If I'm lucky, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> so. um, do you ever have trouble, like, does it ever not work? Are, are there times where you don't, you know, you sit down and it, it just doesn't work at all? Yeah, all the time. Uh, uh, you can, uh, one can feel when when you're writing that if if uh, your if your conscious mind keeps interfering and and I don't know trying to direct what you say. And um, if if I get stuck on those for well, sometimes I, I always try to forge through, you know, and keep keep going and try and find find out where the this, the poem is trying to lead me to, but um, sometimes my my censorious self just won't shut up, and 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 I can also tell, like, if I'm in the middle of a poem and I and I and I and I'm on a I'm on a, a flight, you know, I'm I'm in the zone, and then suddenly my my uh, conscious mind breaks in and 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 the poem goes, you know. <laughs> And then you can, uh, and a lot of times I've had people point out to me in poems when they were looking at them for a magazine or something, they said, she said, this poem just kind of ends right here, you know, and then going to another 12 lines. <laughs> but mm-hmm. so I think other people can tell it too. Yeah, I, I think so. There's a, I mean, uh, Jack Graves calls it the deep voice, but you're trying to find that voice of the deeper mind, you know, and, and it comes out and speaks truth because it knows truth at a deeper level than than we do consciously almost. And, and that's a great example. So Odd Writings mentions uh, the double meanings behind second story as the title 
um, in, in the chat here. And there is that play on second story. Uh, how did that title come to be? Did you sort of just know that that was the title right away? Or, um, or did it, did you realize the the metaphor in that, that, uh, you know, being the second, uh, sort of a secondhand story kind of, and, and that being part of the poem, it's another sort of layer of the metaphor. You know, I don't know. I, uh, um, I, I try to write titles that don't give away the poem in the title. Um, and I, I guess I was thinking that, uh, she, that she was in the second story window uh, in the in the film, although I'm not really sure that she was. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I and then she was maybe if she had lived, she you know could have moved to the United States. She'd only be only be 84 at that time, and could have been living here for years, you know, and and could be on the second story when I came, you know. And, and then there's, there's another story too, so it's kind of, kind of some different levels. And, mm-hmm. But I don't know where that uh, title came from. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, those are you know the best ways things come out is is through that subconscious. Just oh, that's it, <laughs> and then you know, and they just come out, and then the, it all works. Um, you know, on that deeper level. Um, so you were also the founding or founder of Backwaters Press, um, which published a, a great number of really wonderful poets um, from Nebraska. I think it was all poets from the state of Nebraska, right? Um, can you? No, no we, we we ran a, a national contest for oh, okay. mm-hmm. Backwaters Press, and we had we published people from um, oh one one of our winners lived uh, lives in um, Dubai, and um, mostly it's been people from the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, but all over the country, New York, California, a couple Californians, uh, every, everywhere. So, so how, did you, uh, how did that come to be? How did you end up, you know, if with doing social work and all these other jobs, how did uh, <laughs> founding a press become one of them? Well, it's a long story, like everything with me. Um, uh, when I was a student of Greg Kuzma's, he used to run a, a little literary magazine called Pebble, and he also had a, a, a press down in uh, one of those old hand letters, letter press uh, behemoth that weighed about two tons down in his basement. Mm-hmm. And so his wife, Barb, suggested that he call it the bestseller press and because um, it was down in the cellar. And um, I was just struck by how gorgeous the books were and, and, and how uh, also I remember back in – 1975 or so thinking you know I'll, I'll never see my name on a on a spine of a book that'd be so cool if that ever happened and and um um uh, so i always had this idea in mind that i wanted to start a press and then a friend of mine uh, who taught at naropa for a number of years jack column he taught at uh, poets in the schools in nebraska had a manuscript that he'd shown me back uh in about 1985 or something and and i ran across it someplace and discovered and just read through it. And I said, man, this has got to be published. So I just started, decided to start the press and, and publish uh, Jack's book. It was um, Entering the City. That was the first book that Backwaters Press did oh, back wow. in 97 or 98. So what was your experience, you know, starting it out, you know, finding funding? Um, I mean, imagine it was really difficult uh, in a number of ways. Uh, what was your experience like writing that? And you did it for, I don't know, 20 years or something like that, right? Yeah, we did it for 20 years until I, I 
finally just decided to pass it along and the University of Nebraska Press took it over as an imprint. And um, it, uh, the first uh, five or six years, I made the mistake that I guess a lot of small presses make and I funded it myself. So if I didn't have enough uh, money from sales to do another book, I would just pitch it in myself. And I ended up being thousands of dollars in the hole. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I ended up having to borrow some money off of my brother-in-law or uh, we would have gone bankrupt. And, oh, wow. uh, and then when, and when my, when my uh, dad died about 20 years ago, um, we used a pretty good size inheritance to pay off the rest of the, what I owed for the press. And then it was sh shortly after that, around uh, oh, 2010 or so, we got I got incorporated as a, a nonprofit. And, and uh, then we gradually started actually making money a little, a little bit, you know. Mm -hmm. And what is it like? I mean, how much does it cost? Um, I know, you know, inflation changes everything, but how much does it cost to publish a book and how big are the print runs for, for a press like Backwaters? I think a lot of people are probably interested in just the behind the scenes of how a small press operates. When you just uh, want to start something, you find a manuscript you love and say, let's make books. Um, and then there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and it's a lot of stuff that, that happens that people don't understand how it works. So, so how much does a book cost? How many do you print? Uh, how many do you sell? What is it like? on that level of, um, of trying to make, you know, ends meet for a small press. Well, you know, as you were talking, I, I this, this is, I, I know this is too long of a, a topic to answer. It depends for one thing upon the, um, uh, the form of publication that you decide to use. If you use uh, print on demand, it, it can be a lot cheaper than if you, do a press run of say 500 copies or something because mm -hmm. then you have to have money up front and usually with print on demand you can get by with doing uh, a minimal fee for uh uh setup and and uh all the fees that they charge which can be a couple couple hundred bucks and then and then you can print books which are more expensive per book cost but you don't have to spend seven thousand dollars to get a press run you know mm -hmm. so you so, or or maintain a garage full of books that you can't get sold, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it's there's a lot of different answers to that question. I mean, there's been books written about it. So mm -hmm. and, I wouldn't want to lead anybody astray and, <laughs> and have them get into this. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely what true. you what you've done is is amazing. Yeah, well, we had, you know, we started out like with that donation, you know, that you're talking about, um, you know, Alan Fox set it up. So we have a little endowment that, that helps fund everything. And yet I still have a garage with a wall that is just books, <laughs> you know, and I give them out. That's why we give, you know, poets to the prison, you know, books to the prisons and things like that, just to get rid of them, to be honest, because we have <laughs> so many and you don't want to get, you know, you don't want to give them away. So we have... Um, you know, we have events where I give away books. I'm just always giving away books because there's so many, uh, you know, you have to print so many and it does fill up your garage. Um, what was it like on the level of, um, you know, finding authors to publish and, and distributing and things like that? I mean, did you use a lot of the t tools you learned from all those different jobs to go into the press? Because there's so many hats you have to wear for, for running a press, right? Well, it, yeah, it was just a matter of kind of like finding our way along. I found a printer early on uh through poets and writers magazine uh morris publishing in Kearney, nebraska and um they 
they mainly publish like cookbooks and that kind of stuff, you know, the ring bound stuff, but they also publish uh, books like this, you know, that are, uh, what are, what are called tablet books or, or perfect bound. And, um, so they did go, I used them for a couple, oh, probably five or six books and then, uh, started looking around at, uh, different options and found a couple other presses and, and, um, uh, eventually stumbled upon print on demand where I could, where I could get a book set up and ready to go for a couple hundred bucks. And then maybe maybe pay somebody to design a cover for a few hundred dollars and for you know I was working well below the rates <laughs> and um, uh, and then uh, get a get a book out there a lot more frequently because we didn't have the initial huge outlay that you have if you do a press run mm -hmm. and and uh, um, so it was just a, a process of tri trial and error. Yeah, who do you use for print on demand? Well, I used Lightning Source for years. They're mm -hmm. they're really good. Um, they've they've had some issues with um, with quality, but they've always fixed any problems that we had. Mm -hmm. uh, there there are. Uh, it's been a long time, probably ten years or, or eight years since I've been involved directly in publishing. So there there's probably another three or four thousand. <laughs> I mean, I'm jo joking, but there's probably a lot of print-on-demand companies out mm -hmm. there now that didn't exist when I was doing it. Yeah, interesting, because Lightning Source is the Ingram one. So it's with Ingram Distribution, yeah. so you get the distribution, and they sort of have yeah, a monopoly on bookstores. So it's a nice that's combination, one of the, yeah. That's one of the good things about it is for uh, a press is that it's got automatic distribution, right? Mm -hmm. It's on Amazon, and but then I really dislike Amazon because they screw over the publishers like mm -hmm. crazy, like they yeah. screw over everybody else. And... Um, originally, I had uh, had uh, <clears throat> gotten a book accepted by uh, uh, I think it was the Hero Project of the Century by uh, oh, I can't think of his name African American writer from uh, Indiana and uh, they uh, uh, small press dis distribution in San Francisco uh, agreed to start carrying Backwaters press books. Mm -hmm. And then, and then shortly after that, um, I started using print-on-demand technology, and and uh, so I couldn't use SPD anymore because uh, they had a exclusive contract thing. So, although I accidentally did for about five years because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize I wasn't supposed to be. So yeah, sometimes it's nice to be a small press flying under the radar a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> people don't yeah. notice things. Yeah, yeah, no, but nobody true. pays attention. <laughs> Um, one more question about the press. So, so what do you look for in a book? Like, how do you know, you know, that, that a book is something that you're going to want to publish um, versus something that you're not? Is there a certain sort of quality that you are looking for as a, as a publisher and editor of a series of books? Because um, I, I know the books I've read have a lot of different styles, and it's not like it's one sort of type of poem. So what was it? Can you put your finger on something that you were looking for in a book for it to be successful and something you'd want to put out into the world? Well, well, I always tried to uh, follow Emily Dickinson's dictum that you know I I, I know it's a poem when it takes the top of my head off, and um, or something that's a paraphrase. But uh, I, I look for poems that I think kind of like like Rattle does. I tr try to find ones that have a, a deep a deep uh, emotional psychological uh, baggage that it's carrying along, and um, 
probably the the surface of the poem is less important to me than the the, um, uh, emotional content of the poem. Mm -hmm. But um, sloppily, sloppily, that doesn't mean I I like to read poems that are sloppy and Mm -hmm. and dumb, you know, like Mike, like (laughs) Mike. So, but so I really, I really appreciate, you know, what's become the buzzword of for the last twenty years of craft and all that, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and I I enjoy seeing a a really well turned sonnet and you know, Mm -hmm. so I like everything, and um, but what we look for mainly is emotional content. When I was, yeah, something that. Mm-hmm. moves the reader yeah i could definitely relate because that's I, I don't know how else you would do it really because it's you know for me reading a poem you sort of feel something the hair in your arm stands up a little bit you just get a little your heart starts beating a little faster maybe there's like an actual physiological reaction you have to a good poem and and that's really all it is it's a kind of a simple thing as far as i'm concerned and like who cares what kind of poem did that if um you know, it sort of grabs your attention and then makes some kind of physical reaction in your body, which Emily Dickinson called that, having the top of your head taken off. But it could be, you know, anything. And I think you could probably just hook yourself up to a uh, lie detector and, and, and just if it starts going off the chart a little bit, that's the book. <laughs> oh, you let's know. take this book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always imagine, like, you know, an editor strapped to a chair, like in the uh, you know Clockwork Orange, and they're just, like, showing books, and all of a sudden, and, you know, the little <laughs> thing goes, <laughs> exactly, and they're like, that's the one. So, um, yeah, interesting to hear that you do it that way, too. Uh, let, let's hear another poem. We've been uh, talking a while, but okay. I think that was a topic that, that people wanted to hear about, so it's good to cover. Okay. Well, this is a shorter poem. It's called I Have Opened the Front Door to Let in the Bird Song. This was published in a little magazine called um, 84 Words, I think it was. And the <clears throat> you could only have 84 words in the poem. So. How interesting. <laughs> I've opened the front door to let it in the bird songs. Weather unseasonably warm. <clears throat> of course, I get car sounds, too, but I'm determined to accept those voices like anything else in nature. Seems this morning, rusty, out-of-tune pickup trucks are an especially fine throat. Means spring chores are not far behind. A generation of crocuses, or is it crocei, ready to burst into color. And the Toyotas, with their angry, reddish-purple drivers, the freeway must be in bloom by now. Yeah, it's a great little poem. I've opened the front door to let in the bird songs from uh, We Eat the Earth by Greg Kosmicki. And um, I should say, too, if anybody has any questions for Greg, uh, feel free to leave them in the chat windows on Facebook or YouTube. I'm keeping an eye on both. Um, a lot of people enjoying the voice in these poems and, uh, and the, you know, the way they don't know. You don't know where it's going. And um, so if you have any questions, you know, I'll pass them along. So leave them in the uh, chat window. Um, but can you talk a little bit about your, your you know, once you write the poem, you, know, you, you mentioned before sort of sort of sloppily doing it, maybe it's your own word for it, I think. But there's a way that you kind of, to, to feel sort of natural um, and, and casual, because there's a kind of a casual element to, to what you're doing. You, you, you want it to feel that way too. And so it's sort of an artistry to being casual, that sort of delight and disorder kind of like, oh, this is nothing is part of the act, I think, right? So So how much... You know, what do you think about sort of line breaks and, and how to shape and structure a poem? Do you, do you write it with the line breaks and, and the shape that it has now? Or is there a lot of revision um, after the fact? What is your writing process like on that level of, of detail? 
Well, to tell you the truth, for the first, uh, I, I don't know, 10 years or 15 years or so, or maybe longer that I wrote, I never paid attention to line breaks at all. I just, uh, w when I w was writing, I would get to the end of the line and I'd turn around and go back to the, you know. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, Jack Collum called that uh, a Boustrophodon plow or something, you know. Uh -huh. Boustrophodon means when they're doing a field, they to go back and forth. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, and so that's another thing that I sort of became self-conscious about when some of my friends who are really good poets started pointing out, wow, I really like these line breaks. And how did you decide to do that? And what, you know, what made you decide to break it there? And, and these are so, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they catch, um, they, you don't know where it's going to go in the next line, you know, and it's, uh, and, and. So I, then I started becoming self-conscious about that, and, <laughs> and but I did I I do kind of uh, have not some rules, but I I try to tend to put a you know a stronger word at the end of the line mm -hmm. uh, rather than a the or an and or something. But I'm not averse to leaving a the or an and on the end of the line, maybe just to be contrary, I suppose, and, mm -hmm. and because some people get enraged when they see that. You know, and so I, I, I like to think that maybe I'm pissing some editor off out there. <laughs> He's not going to publish my poem, but <laughs> look at he left a thought at the end of this line and tell me, you know, so. <laughs> Well, so well, yeah. Well, one of the criticisms we get, um, you know, from from some people publishing poems, especially because we have the Rattle uh, Poetry Prize, and the whole goal of that is to get people who don't usually read a lot of poetry to get excited about submitting, and then they read a literary journal for a year, and and the chapbooks too, and sort of get maybe sucked into our um, world where we love poetry, where they're just jotting things to the start. But you hear from those people, and a lot of times they say, "This isn't poetry; it's just prose with line breaks." <laughs> and so, what do you say to that? Is there, uh, is it prose with line breaks? Does it matter? Is it not? Uh, why is it not? Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I, um, there was a quote from uh, Mark Strand, and somebody was asking him why why does he have um, line breaks like that, and and he said something along the lines I don't remember the exact quote that that the reason that poems have jagged jagged lines is so you can tell it it's a poem, you know. <laughs> But and of course that all goes out the window if you're writing prose poems, you know, blocks of poems. I, so I, I think it's, I think that the the reason that you can tell it's a poem is maybe it's up to the reader to decide is this a poem or not because uh, of the effect that it has on you, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I suppose a novel can have the same effect on you too if after the 438th page you finally get to the point, you know, where, <laughs> you know. Like, like the end of um, uh, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, I think it was, where the, the guy is waiting out there in the woods with his rifle and he's wounded really badly and, and he sees and he knows that the enemy's approaching and, and uh, the whole world narrowed down to the focus of that. that. That was kind of like that was kind of like a poem, a 350 page long poem, you know. But, yeah. <laughs> So, so, so that is, is that your, I don't know what you asked me. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, is that your definition of poem? Like the, the, the feeling, like something that evokes a feeling, what would you call it that? I, I, I think so. I don't, um, 
Yeah, I, I think these arguments or questions have been going on for hundreds of years. You know what? What makes a poem? And I, I, I don't, I don't know if anybody really actually knows. There's always somebody who comes along and says, "Well, it has to be rhymed and metered." You know, and that was a, a fashion at one time. And um, and I, I, I my first uh, little chapbook of poems, uh, uh, I it was a really beautifully bound um, copy by a Brady Press in Omaha, and. Um, uh, I took it into work and I showed my, my boss there and he looked through it. He says, he, he reads it and he these aren't poems. They're, they don't rhyme, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I said, okay, give me that back, you know? So anyway, uh, I, I don't really know what makes a poem mm -hmm. or, or why, or why anybody would want to do it. <laughs> but it still feels good when you do. So mm -hmm. yeah, it, it definitely does. And um, you know, people have remarked on your sort of happy demeanor. You know that there's so many poets. You know that they're so full of pathos, and and you know poems are so often written about problems. And there's a there's a happiness that that sort of comes through in your poetry and in, in the interview here. Um, do you think poetry is one of the things that keeps you happy like that? Is it does it stave off the the less happy aspects of it? Is that one of the things it does? I guess it hasn't been doing a very good job the last uh, seven or eight years, though. I've been uh, fighting off getting depressed all the time because mm -hmm. of the political news, you know. So, mm -hmm. And I've had, I back when uh, W was president, I, I kind of, uh, uh, I, I just said to myself, I'm not going to allow this guy to move into the inside of my head and occupy space and, and, so I just I refused to write poems about anything having to do with political stuff and and um, um, but maybe I should have written more poems and I would have stayed happier. I don't I don't know. <laughs> well, let's but, keep the poems coming because uh, I'm not on a good pace. I should have done more. So let's do the morning cloak next. Okay, the morning cloak. On my way back from a walk, I saw a morning cloak. The morning cloak is a large-sized butterfly for these parts. It flew up in front of me, then circled around behind me. It landed on the grass a few yards back, so I walked over to see it. <clears throat> Along with me and my fellow... Oh, I'm sorry. I walked very carefully because I did not want to frighten it. I walked very carefully because it is one of the last creatures alive, along with me and my fellow humans. We who have killed off most of the others. The morning cloak has dark gray-brown wingtips that darken toward the <clears throat> body into a deep blue, a blue so iridescent and perfect it can break your heart in two, like a big sky or a lone tree in the middle of a field. Its posterior wing border is bright yellow from tip to tip. It has tiny blue dots all along the yellow band. I don't know the name for the blues, or if we, haven't, if we have even named them in English. I say its name is not me. I say its name is something beautiful. I say its name is us. Its thorax is black velour, body like a little cigar, a perfecto. On the back of its head, it has two small yellow dots, I think are false eyes. To some other creature, it may look fearsome. I stood on the sidewalk, the traffic roaring by. I stood and looked at the morning cloak butterfly as it rested on a blade of grass beside a pinkish head of lawn clover. I stood, I stood until I became aware that someone of my species may think that I am insane 
And though the morning cloak did not move, I moved along. Nothing to see here. I want to be pure as the morning cloak. I want to live the life left to me without regret. Yeah, great last line there, Greg. Um, that was the morning cloak. And um, it, 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 I, I wonder, too, about you know the way you write, given the way um, that you sort of don't know where you're going and, and you let the, uh, the poem flow where it will. How do you know when the, when the poem's over? How do you know when you've reached that last line? Is it, is it, do you hear it? Like, is there a sound to it that you know that's the end and then you're done? Well, yeah, kind of. I, I, uh, I think I know when it's done is when that stupid voice intrudes again on me and tells, and, and then it wrecks the poem. And so I quit there, you know, <laughs> but, um, I, I, when I was studying, uh, um, Robert Frost with Greg Kuzma back at Nebraska, um, I, I remember some, uh, some of the the lines I would get in my head, like uh, the the last couple lines of the woodpile, what the um, the about the, uh, the the slow smokeless burning of decay. You know that that's an incredibly beautiful rhythm, and um, uh, or or the last the last few lines of uh, uh, directive. You know. Uh, these are your waters and your watering place drink and be whole again beyond confusion, you know, mm-hmm. some just, and, and I, so I kind of get those rhythms in my head and, and um, th- this was years ago. I, and, and, uh, and I guess I would go around at, slotting words in and see if they, they worked in this rhythm. And, and sometimes that, that would make me start writing poems, but um uh, I, I just don't know when they're ended. That's been a problem of mine all these years. I, I, I don't, I send out all these horrible poems and with one good one and uh, to magazines and, and they read through the first nine pages. Just, this stuff is horrible, you know? <laughs> and then the, the one that was really good, they don't even get to because the other ones were so I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I mean, I'm being, that's a little bit of joking, but it's like, cause you know, you can tell if you write a poem that works, but sometimes they're, they're kind of, they're so close to me that I don't know if they're, if it, if it would actually work because it was a good poem or if it, if it works because I knew what was going on in it, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting question. There's a big, a deep mystery to it too. Uh, let, let's share that one. Let's do uh, why should I be unhappy? <clears throat> why should I be unhappy? Why should I write, write unhappy poems? We're all going to die anyway. I might as well write something happy. Hell, I've got this house. I've got this computer. It's cold as hell outside, six degrees Fahrenheit, but I'm relatively warm. My ankles are a little cold, but I've got on a T-shirt and a sweater, a nice thick green sweater, and I pulled a light blue sweatshirt on over that. Lots of poor bastards out there tonight all over the world don't have that to be happy about. Lots of people don't have anything to be happy about. My kids are all grown up and healthy. Most people's kids in this world, on average, neither grow up nor are they healthy. I've got that. And they're not only healthy, but there's, but they're none of them mentally unbalanced. As a matter of fact, they're all very well balanced. They're what you might even call stable. That was before Trump. <laughs> I don't know how my wife and I could have been so lucky. That's another thing. I've got a wife who made, who with minimal interference and with a lot of help really, has allowed me the space I need after her few demands like maybe wash the dishes once in a while or take out the trash, to be a poet. 
and to start a money-losing company to print books by other poets that had sucked up all my free time, time that I could have spent with her, maybe in front of the TV, I'll grant you, but with her. She has given me all that time and more. She has given me her whole life so that we could have children and I could be a poet. So what do I have to be unhappy about? Even now I'm drinking a glass of Paisano wine as I type this on my computer. Wine made by Carlo Rossi, good old Carlo Rossi. He's most likely been dead now these many years, or maybe he never actually even existed. Out of a gallon of wine we've got for only nine bucks. Who can complain? Sure, we're all gonna die. A good friend died just a couple days ago, and her son's first wife died of cirrhosis of the liver that same weekend. She never had a chance, but let's be happy. Everybody's gonna die. Lakota even had a saying for it when they were going into battle. It's a good day to die. I think they meant, if you're living honorably, every day is a good day to die. We're all gonna die. Let's be happy about it. Maybe my house has termites, I don't know. Maybe the foundation's giving in, I don't know. The floors creak when you walk on them where they didn't used to, and the pottery in the china cabinet rattles when heavy trucks, when heavy vehicles go by in the street. And that didn't used to happen. But the house hasn't caved in, and we're all alive here, me and Debbie and the dust mites. We're all going to die. Let's be happy. <laughs> yeah, a really fun poem. Why Should I Be Unhappy by Greg Kosmicki from uh, We Eat the Earth. And um, let's see, Greg, so... Um, Kim Tedger's here, and she wanted me to say, um, tell Greg that we in Nebraska miss him, because you did move uh, to California from Nebraska after such a long time living there. Uh, uh, Tom Hunley's there and says hi. We're planning on moving back. Planning on moving back, yeah. And why is that? Do you you miss Nebraska or uh, not like California? Yeah, I wanted to run for the Miss Nebraska pageant. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, Well, it's actually just so freaking expensive here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we live 25 miles from San Diego and we go, we like to go into San Diego almost every day of the week. And, and it was, our car was sucking gas and it was just, and, um, we ended up, we have enough money to live on, but, but if we wanted to go do something fun, we, uh, you know, like take a trip to Vancouver or something for a couple of weeks, we couldn't really afford to do it anymore. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I can definitely, I can definitely relate to that living in it's a lot less, a lot less expensive in Omaha. Yeah, so. yeah, definitely. <laughs> I can definitely relate. Um, so um, let's see. So where where to go? Um, Cindy Guntherman uh, wants to know: Do your poems come quickly, and do you ever dream them? Which is an interesting question. I think I, I think I heard you say that they're usually. You said casually twenty or thirty minutes. So I think maybe that counts as quickly. Uh, but do, but do you dream of them? Um. I have occasionally um, had a, a dream or two, but uh, where where uh, I I remember thinking as I'm dreaming, boy, that's really good. Then I wake up and I write it down, and and it kind of sucks, you know. So, um, I and I I've had some dream imagery come into poems before uh, on occasion, but they I find that they don't really uh, work that well for me. I I do know that some poets really. Uh, I mean, they they keep a journal by their bed and jump up if they have a thought and they wake and write it down. But you know, I, I'm trying to sleep. I don't be bothered by writing poems. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> 
Um, but, uh, people both on um, Facebook and YouTube have mentioned uh, the, the landline phone behind you. <laughs> they want to know if that's a working phone. Is that what you called me from a, a few minutes before the broadcast? No, no. I, I called you for, I called you from my, my cell phone. I, uh-huh. my, my wife had me get one because uh, I had an episode where I, I fell over because uh, I smoked too much dope, actually. And um, anyway, so she didn't want me to be passing out and not. not. <laughs> but no, that's that's uh, was on the wall in the basement uh, in our house in Omaha, and I so I just brought it out here mm-hmm. for a de- decoration. Yeah, well, it does. It brings back a lot of nostalgia. I mean, obviously, I had the same one when I was a kid. You know, I remember like stretching it across the room to the other room. <laughs> yeah, that's got a really long cord. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I miss those. Um, yeah. but, but that kind of brings up, you know, there's a way, is poetry itself kind of anachronistic? You know, is it, is it something, do you think poetry is fading out or do you think um, it still has the same vitality as it did just as a whole, maybe 20 or 30 years ago? Oh, I, I think it's got a lot more, you know, uh, when, uh, the you know the spoken word i mean i don't uh, th- that's inflected by rap music so it's a different kind of poetry than i write but that's that's excited a lot of people a lot of people to, to get out and and uh write poems and there's there's a million little magazines i mean they they come up like mushrooms and um i i from what I can see, there's there's a tremendous amount of write, uh, interest in writing poetry, and mm-hmm. um, I I don't know if it was if it's always just been there and people didn't have a place to, to express it, or if the MFA movement, you know, back in the early '70s sparked it, or you know, because everybody's a poet now, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but well, it's yeah. I mean, I don't, I think, I don't think it's dying off. I think you know, it's like the 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 uh, death knell has been sounded way too early. I think. Yeah, for sure. And I think the um, yeah, there's more poets than ever, and you can see that there's just so many poets, and it's, it's it makes things more difficult. Maybe fewer venues as some are shutting down, or you know, more and more you see that. Uh, you know, journals and things that have been around for so long. But there's definitely a, a lot of poets, a lot of interest in it. And I think, uh, to me, I think it's going to increase, uh, you know, more and more as we get more, you know, because it's the antidote to our era, I would say, you know, to meditate and think about life and create for yourself. Um, and poetry is a way that we can all do that. Um, but let's let's close out. We're out of time. Let's do one last poem. Uh, let, let's do the lines written okay. to be presented to a living audience, which is... Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. This is a kind of long one, so lines written to be presented to a living audience. I'm standing here before you reading this poem off a sheet of 50-pound recycled paper printed with words I wrote several months ago on a night in September 2009. It was a Saturday night, and I had worked on proofing some of my own poem on a computer and had answered some emails. My wife and I watched TV that afternoon to see the Nebraska Cornhuskers ridiculously lose a game of football they were winning to the Virginia Tech Hokies. Also that day in Omaha, there were two murders an hour apart from each other. But the news of the game and of even the weather took precedence over two human beings being shot in Omaha. Anyway, here I am reading this poem to you, and there you are listening to me. As if I were a person who knows something of life, who has a secret to understanding you don't have, or that you 
or that you know you do have, but sometimes feel or think you don't know how to express. I know sometimes you want to scream at the person standing in front of you, reading words he or she has written some months ago and typed up onto a computer to read to you today. Shut up. You're making me crazy with all your BS, your assumed errors, your silly stories about your stupid life. If that's what you're thinking, as I'm sure some of you are, then allow me to extend to you my apologies, or maybe even my hand, as if we were all of us in this room shipwrecked, lost on a dark sea in the middle of our lives. All the old certainties now no longer worth anything. Let me give my hand to you and pull you up onto the shore of my certainty, my belief, that these words here on this page are real, though I wrote them months and months ago, possibly even years, and that I know nothing more than you do about survival at sea, or in anything at all for that matter, <clears throat> not life in general, or in board meetings in particular, not in making love, nor in cooking up an egg the right way, nor in raising up children. All I know how to do is to keep writing these words down on the page that stay behind me like tracks I left coming out of the jungle, though I've never been in a jungle, coming out of the desert, though I have only been in a desert to gamble or urinate beside an ancient Joshua tree, though I know no more about mountains than what I've learned from them from a few hours of staying in them, a few brief walks, and for all the rest, what little I know of the world comes from images in books and words in books, like the desert or the ocean or even the great plains where I grew up, or love or hate or Nepal or situational ethics. It's all been only a little bit of actual pressing my face against a rock or my fingers in the cracks between the bricks and mortar of a building or on the flesh of another person's thigh. Oh, I know I've literally seen spiders weaving their webs, and I have seen a dog take a crap on a lawn more than once, and I have seen two squirrels going at it in my driveway, and even a few animals other places. And I've looked up at the night sky to see more stars than I could comprehend, knowing that our culture's number system in relationship to the universe is like the tribesmen they found in ancient villages whose number systems were one and everything greater than one. But maybe those Stone Age guys are on to it. Maybe they know what I do not, and you may not. You see, I can't even tell that about you, that we only learn through our bodies. And I <clears throat> reach out my hand here today to you, where you float on that little piece of flotsam or jetsam you call your life. You can actually touch it, my brothers, my sisters, my fathers and mothers, who are all out there at the tangled ends of these lines that look like barbed wire the night I wrote them in my crabbed hand, that look like the lines of communication we must keep open, that look like the earth opening up and drawing us back in, that go out from me and into you, into that unbridgeable, bridgeable space between us, the synapse of the poem. Yeah, the great poem I thought to end on.
Greg. The uh, lines written to be presented to a living audience, which hopefully we are out here <laughs> for uh, Greg's newest book, We Eat the Earth. Uh, thanks for being a guest, Greg. It's a pleasure talking to you. You know, the humor and the, and the joy comes through how much you love writing and, and sharing these poems. And it's great talking to you about it. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much. It was Greg Kazmicki with We Eat the Earth. Um, if you want to spend more time with Greg, just pick up a copy of his book because that's what it feels like reading through. Um, you can find more. Uh, you can find the book itself at uh, WSC Press. That's WSCPress.com is the uh, publisher of this book, We Eat the Earth. So do check that out if you would. Now we're going to take a uh, bit of a break and go to our prompt lines. And the prompt for this week was to write a poem that begins with an idiomatic expression that you take literally or incorrectly and see where it goes. So if you have poems like that, email it first to promptlines at rattle.com, all one word, promptlines at rattle.com. Uh, and then I can show the poem on the screen as we go, if you haven't done that yet. And then find the Zoom link, which I'm going to paste into the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. Join the Zoom, share a poem, but only if you want to share a poem. And only if you have a prompt poem, because it's the prompt lines now. Um, and so um, join us there, share a poem. But if you just want to enjoy, sit back and uh, enjoy the poetry, do that. And um, stay right where you are with the YouTube or Facebook or Twitter streams. And I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Now, before we go to the prompt lines, I wanted to share a book with everybody. Um, there's a new book out by Edward Noodleman, who, um, or an endowment, I should say. And, uh, and Ed is a poet we published um, back in the uh, Science Poets issue. I asked him to be on the Rattlecast because I thought it'd be so cool to uh, have a scientist poet on um, to talk about that. He's a um, biochemical oncologist. Um, and we've been friends on Facebook for a long time, but he couldn't do the Zoom for, for various reasons. And so um, I just wanted to share a couple of poems from this book. The book is Nonlinear Equations for Growing Better Olives. And a, a beautiful book um, from Kelsey Books that we'll put on the screen here. There's Ed. Um, he says, um, uh, this is a blur from Greg Bilgeer, but he says, but there quotes it. He says, um, I liked my career in biochemical oncology, but the nomenclature bored me, lacking the spice of common names and not conveying the architecture of discovery and wonder. And so the idea of a, a scientist moving through the world, looking at poems is really fascinating. You get a lot of looks at, um, at life, um, and biology as he moves through the world with this sort of scientific eye. I thought I'd share two poems from the book just because um, he couldn't be a guest and I wanted him to be. So here's the here's scientific method. Owls in the orchestra, hooting disruption. An old man napping on a park bench, sitting up at dusk, puzzled by some forgotten urgency. Through the dark network tunnels, the forest mole, solving for each blind X is wise, tender shoots await a raccoon's hungry chewing. Sixty million years ago, an asteroid collides with a planet. No more Stegosaurus. You rise before the sun and hit the road, but the traffic still thickens and rivers run dry. A mountain punctures a thundercloud without an injury we can measure. A lone hummingbird on a branch nearby flashes iridescent in the gloaming, toggles from one shade of red to another, like the blush of heartbeat in all things, loops and layers and dots, a scrim of beauty that for a moment the old man understands. So that's the opening poem from the book, and I'll read the title poem, too. Um, this is the title poem, Nonlinear Equations for Growing Better Olives. Perhaps you've been given the grace of happy oblivion, but I think of the star's speed every day. Reclining in my lawn chair, pointed upward, I see only clear blue, 
Yet I know the stars hurtle through space at about a half million miles per hour, with little deflecting them but the heartthrob of gravity. I sometimes wonder if it's me, thinking too fast, and maybe not even at all, a mere mortal fluxed by galaxy and planet, thwarted by a tiny virus, or rippled through by the most benign of forces. It makes me wonder, as I dab a brow, wiping clean the clash of unearned serendipity, my needle, my needled imagination projecting far more nervous doubt than the appreciation of paradox. In forty years of biomedical research, only one raptured dreamer ever reminded me of the simple path with his bench-side epithets invoking Occam's razor. Cautioning with a waving finger and a bent smile, don't forget that razor, while I shot the moon with complicated theories. And now in Seattle, my little olive trees have only a smattering of mature, ripe olives, while thousands of shriveled, unfertilized specks dot the branches. This is an unsolved problem I've attacked for years, and though I'd love olives of decent size to brine and adorn in decorated jars with custom labels, blowing through a straw for days trying to move pollen particles from another from anther to pistol takes a toll. After explaining coronavirus and months of defending self-evident data, taking heat for revealing obvious conspiracy and rubbernecking graphs and charts, I'm left innervated, perplexed, full of survivor's guilt. Where some see a million scattered dots, I see cytokine storms and shining green stars birthing and dying. So that is um, the title poem from Nonlinear Equations for Growing Better Olives by Ed Noodleman. Um, and you can find that... Um, from Kelsey Books. So do check that out. Just wanted to share that. We have this slot that sometimes we have um, guests return for, sometimes uh, some poets like this who, um, who can't be a guest but have a book I'd like to share. So uh, that was Ed Noodleman. Um, now let's go to the actual prompt lines. And our prompt poems editor is here uh, from the, uh, the new Texas office, which um, you know, I put together most of those bookcases in the back. Hey, Katie, how you doing? <laughs> I get going for a minimalist look, you know? Yeah, that, that's the new look. And, and uh, you can see those wonderful Ikea bookshelves that at some point soon <laughs> will be filled with books. Um, but you, you'd be remiss if you didn't point out that you have the same Ikea bookshelf behind you. Yes, I do. So we got the same, although there's two <laughs> and there's a cabinet in the middle. So we got lots of bookshelves back there in the, uh, in the Texas office. Uh, but good to see you, Katie. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I really like the interview. I feel like Greg is so cool. I aspire to be like half as cool as he is. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely a chill kind of customer. It's it's fun uh, talking to him and not you know not taking anything too seriously, which is I guess what he does. Um, you know, just enjoying the process of making poems happen. Yeah, and I've got to copy that landline on the wall as art trick. I think that's pretty brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about how um, when he said that that it's similar to the typewriter that is completely unused that I have in the background here as if, you know, for a little while I did, um, you know, Instagram photos typing away and there's one ad that we do. That's the only use it's ever had actually though. It's like a few lines of poetry, <laughs> but, uh, but it is pretty back there and a phone would do the same trick, I think. So. Yeah, I think so. It's like a Dada art object at this point, I think. <laughs> yeah, it is. I remember when, uh, when my kids, uh, there was a phone booth, and my kids had no idea what it was. And so, I mean, there was no, there was a phone in there too. They were like, what is this? <laughs> I'm like, you used to take a quarter out and plop it in and, you know, but anyway. <laughs> um, so, so the prompt for this week was to um, um, write about an idiom and take it ser or literally or, or in some different direction. Um, what did you do for your poem? 
Well, I had to pick one that was poker related because they're about a billion poker related idioms. Mm-hmm. So I went with under the gun, which if you play poker means like you're the first to act. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, and you I, better act fast. I have to admit, I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> no. I know they say <laughs> I know they say it when you watch poker on ESPN or whatever, but but I don't know. I don't know what most yeah. of the poker terms mean. Although I, th- I think yeah. poker is fun, but <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing. Okay, so let's let's hear this one. Okay, under the gun. At first, I thought it was a steel chandelier above my head, back when your words were only words loaded with blanks, when I thought anything empty was simply a kind of vase. How many wildflowers did I pick to fill your barrels? Every time I looked up, your muzzles eyed my pupils. I blinked and pistols bloomed to rifles. I triggered you by rooting where you couldn't grow which is everywhere I have ever known. And when you finally fired every gun, I thank you for your rain that shot me towards the sun. Yeah, great line, little rhyme at the end there, under the gun. Uh, Thanks for sharing that, Katie. Thank you. And you wrote a bunch of poems this week, right? You I told did. me this. I did. Yeah, I only, true. You beat me. I yeah, only wrote once. like two poems this week. So. Yeah, I had on the plane back from Texas, I had a whole row to myself. And so there was like no one. And I was like, got the window at first. And I just jumped in the middle, stretched out, had my little laptop. And I wrote, I think I wrote like 10 of these. And, you know, as a setup, or, or it's not much to, it's kind of easy to do. But these are all prose poems. Um, and it's kind of almost like a chat book. But I'm not going to read, I won't read them all. Uh, but I'll read a few of these. So this is um, The Idioms, is what I'm calling it. This is From The Idioms. So, um here, here's one. Every cloud has a silver lining. And all I did, of course, I just wrote down, I, I, in the, while I was waiting to board, I, I copied and pasted a list of idioms. And I just, I wanted to see how many I could do something for. So, uh, and I got to, uh, well, I got to, actually, I got to seven before the turbulence started. And then I had to, I finished a couple later at home. But anyway, um, every cloud has a silver lining. And so the drones dart like dragonflies, skimming the dust from their bellies with tiny parachutes. Day and night they zip overhead, following the cold fronts, dropping their harvest straight down the long throats of the smelting trucks. And so what if it always rains, the clouds spilling their guts on the people? Haven't we given them silver boots and umbrellas? Can't we finally afford to make more clouds with assault? Every cloud is a silver lining. Here's barking up the wrong tree. Um... At first, I thought the dog was just afraid of stairs, the way he'd follow me to their feet and then poke his nose at the risers. I bought a dog, not a goddamn mime, I'd yell from the landing, but he'd only cock his head and stare at the stairs in confusion. Then he'd start to whimper like he was questioning his sanity, like my voice was the voice of God or an alien's calling from a higher dimension. Finally, I laid down beside him and saw that that's what it was, his heightless body thinner than a puddle of paint. I petted the top of his head, which was all of him. His fur wasn't soft. It was impossibly smooth, my hand moving without friction like a floating magnet. That was only one of the perks of a 2D dog. No hair to shed, no noise from his nails click-clacking in the hall. Outside, he'd catch the squirrels by their shadows, climbing in a sprint up the shadows of trees. Ooh. So that is... um, With the squirrels catching the squirrels by their shadows. That is a cool line. Well, thank you. And then here is um, another one. I think... I don't know. It's a two-page max. What do you think? Should I read more? Of course you should read more, Timothy Green. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> this, is, this is the shortest one, I think. It's Tempest in a Teacup. 
There's a tempest in my teacup, she said, and there it was, the size of a pushpin, swirling, flaked with streaks of goldish lightning. She reached down to pluck it out. No, don't, her seatmate yelled, but it was too late. They were already married in the drain. Here's, um, he couldn't wrap his head around it. The house was too big. All those bedrooms and baths, the vaulted ceilings, living room, drawing room, family room, dining room, all their air ducts and upgrades, all the chrome appliances and crown moldings, the pictures and frames, the paintings with the artist's names and oil under glass. He found what must be the center of the house as mass and spun, but for the blur of it only wrapped around him. He ran a lap on the lot line. He pressed his face against the brick facade, spreading the flesh of his forehead over a corner with a finger. Back in the heart of the house, he found his favorite chair and sat there, wondering what it was that was missing. I'll do one more. And they Yay! keep going on. But I don't want... Keep going. That's so I'll great. Do, I'll do one more. Okay. This is, I'm at the drop of a hat. The day we learned about the difference between classical and operant conditioning, I taught my little brother to dance at the drop of a hat. It was a simple task. Drop the hat in front of him, then reward the right movements incrementally with candy. Like Skinner teaching rats to climb a ladder one little paw at a time, he first learned a jig, then the jitterbug. The next day, I brought him in for show and tell, like the rest of my classmates. He held, we held up our hats at the front of the room and dropped them together at the sound of the teacher's bell. She was pleased. We would finally have a chorus for the play. So that is, um, and then they do keep going on, but that'll be enough. But those were my, um, the idioms. And I might just keep going. It's kind of, um, I was doing a haiku a day, but those are just as easy as a haiku. So maybe I'll keep going for a while because I was kind of running out of haiku. Well, I cursed the turbulence on the plane that kept us from getting <laughs> six more. But other than that, those are amazing. Uh, well, thank you. And we'll be back with Katie to hear uh, what the prompt poem is going to be next week. But, um, but thanks, Katie. Thank you. And now let's see what everybody else has for their uh, idiomatic poems. You know, Katie, you can keep your mic open. It's quiet there if you want to just chime in with comments. Like, we kind of miss you when you're, like, in a different Aww. state. Well, I would like to comment that Nivedita needs to read next. That's a good point. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks for See, that's already an excellent contribution. Yay! Um, yeah, here, here, let's go to Nivy next. Hey, Nivy. Um, hi, Katie. Hi, everybody. Thanks, and sorry for cutting in late. <laughs> yeah, it's great to see you. It's great to have you. Uh, and I always want to get you before uh, you have to go back to work. So what do you have to share this week? Um, I have a prompt poem. Uh, I found it very difficult to choose an idiom, but I sort of invented this random idiom generator, and the first one it popped up is the one I chose, which was come rain or shine. Um, I took it in sort of a fun way. It's not funny, but it's more lighthearted. It's more light verse, but how we should probably live our life. <laughs> not preachy by any means, but that's just how it turned out for me. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, that's great. Looking forward to it. Go ahead. Okay. Come rain or shine. In rain or shine, we'll find a quirky rhyme and have some fun come storms or sunshine. With umbrellas we twirl and rainbows we dance, giving those sun hats a break from their psychedelic trance. Come rain or shine, we'll boldly advance through a life full of quirky, unpredictable romance. Although the weather may jest, you'd best be assured we'll do our best. Through rain and shine, we'll laugh and play, as joy will be our only focus, no matter the color of the sky today. Uh, beautiful. Excellent point. I love the way uh, that this prompt is leading to um, more happy, you know, playful poems. It's so fun to hear. 
And a good good pairing with uh, Greg Kosmicki is the guest too, like a fine line, the prompt lines are. Yeah, it's a fine line. I, I heard bits of it on the way to work on the train. And I especially loved Carla's haiku until the end you were right, we didn't know. And Katie's the ending was brilliant. And yours, I loved the drop of a hat the oh. best. <laughs> thanks so much. Well, thanks, Nivi. Always a pleasure having you. Um, great Thank you. Thanks, thanks, everybody. Have a good Bye. day at work. Bye. Thank you. Have a good evening. Yeah, that was Nivi to Karthik with um, Come Rain or Shine. Um, next up we have uh, Dick Westheimer. Hey, Dick. Jim. How you doing? Good. You are in a different uh, location. I am in a different location. It's cold here, and this room has a little more heat than my little tiny office. Yeah, so. And the camera is like some amazingly uh, powerful camera. That's like, like I'm going to have to ask you off screen what you bought so I can buy one. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a uh, a, a primer in my in my um, primal camera, something like that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I love the interview. I I think I the piece that I love the most about it was just the voice you know the the speaking voice obviously the poetic voice matches it but maybe it was the consistency of the two mm -hmm. uh, yeah it is and it's been like that you know every time i've read i think you know because i get all, i get so many books in the mail and i had no way to use them for years either except for you know, we have some reviews for a while but um you know so i've read a bunch of his books and they all have that same quality it feels like you're getting to sit down and you know meet a friend which is just a nice feeling to uh to come across and the humor comes through too it's just a it's a fun we to engage the world too. Well, then he he kind of rolls in without you suspecting it. These metaphors that are just <laughs> kind of like they're they're very much part of the speaking of the poem, but um, he does it without any any sort of pretense. Mm -hmm. It's really nice. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's that that you know that the feigning of um, casualness, <laughs> but it's not that yeah. that casual to write poems like that. Yeah, is that like the George Burns joke about the way you fake? It's um, uh, sincerity is the most important thing, and once you can fake that, you call it me. <laughs> That's great. I haven't heard that before. I love that. <laughs> okay, so, well, what do you, what do you got? The uh, uh, I sent smaller by actually. Chris I, I, I thought I had sent it as as a um, as a poet's respond poem, but I didn't. So here you're you're getting it uh, for the first time. Um, it's called My World Made Smaller by Chips and Crisps. And it was just this quirky little article in The Guardian about the people who are responsible for the different flavors of Lay's all mm -hmm. around the world. Yeah. Um, and they're like hundreds, hundreds of flavors of Lay's, including uh, poutine in Canada. Um, so My World Made Smaller by Chips and Crisps. Uh, crisps and Chips. Let the chips fall where they may. Let the Brits call them crisps. Let the crumbled bits find their way into the seams of my new car's heated seats. I had sworn on a holy bag of flaming lays. I'd not snack there, but every time I drive, I crave that crunch, digging my ungloved hand into the sack, grabbing a fistful of red dye number two corn and or canola oil malodextrin powder, all over my mitts. It's flavor I crave, the chili pepper punch, the barbecue heat. It's my drug, and I can pack my habit in my carry-on bag and take it with me to exotic places, cram my face with masala mayhem in the UK, soil myself with Swiss grilled cheese in Belize, or crispy squid in a Bangkok bistro, or I can stay right here 
park in my new park my new ride in the driveway and surround myself with foreign flavors staining my greasy orange thumbs and smear my hands on the thighs of my pants let me celebrate the great festival of colors uh, of holy alone in my car gorging on nothing important <laughs> such a fun poem dick thanks for sharing that. my world made smaller by crisps and chips <laughs> that's excellent <laughs> yeah it's, it's a little sad seeing me in my driveway <laughs> gorging on <laughs> on flaming lays but don't tell anybody about I, it i won't the secret is safe with us <laughs> yes <laughs> thanks dick bye-bye yep take care so dick last timer with uh, my world made smaller by crisps and chips uh steven allen is next in line hey steven Hi there. Yeah, great to see you. Good to be here. So, uh, so, so what, how do you tackle the prompt? I tackled it by writing a sonnet, of course. <laughs> um, sonnet for a damp day. Ah. It's raining cats and dogs, and also men, and even horses. Why not add some lions, giraffes, and zebras? and the odd white chicken blazing the red wheelbarrow on the way down. Let's not forget the smaller precipitation, mice fleeing from the sodden cats and droves, chipmunks and squirrels increasing the population of rodents in the world, shrews and moles. And smaller still, the insect world drops wetly, flies and gnats and lice, some clinging to hosts, some falling free, and eternal fleas, down to tardigrades and merest ghosts of zooplankton, the little beasts will get into the cracks. You might as well get wet. Ah, that's great. Love that. Yeah, thanks Thank so much you. for sharing that. I always love a sonnet, and uh, always love a sonneteer. Thanks for being here, Stephen. You're welcome. Yep, it was Sonnet for Damp Day by Stephen Allen. Um, next, we have uh, Stephen Croft, going from one Stephen to another, but a PH to a V. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Tim. Yeah, good to see you. What you got for us this week? Uh, it's about time you called on me tonight. <laughs> and uh, my idiomatic expression is, it's about time. <laughs> That's perfect. Okay. So here goes. It's about time. Time will never come full circle like a broken wall clock. Time will never catch me like the bad guys in Road Warrior. Time is hardly the past and the present, like your great aunt's fruitcake. Time is too handsy, just try turning back its hands. Time was precious, like a string of pearls fenced on the black market. Time was a dish served cold in revenge of the alarm clock. Time can have a stitch that saves nine like nine can't save its confabulous self. Time will tell or maybe tattletale on space as their relationship continuums. Time to quit while I'm behind like the poetry police with handcuffs. Oh, that's great. Love that ending, too. So many things you do about time. Um, excellent use of the, the prompt to uh, spin off that. Thanks for sharing that, Stephen. Thank you. It was Stephen Croft with It's About Time. Uh, Brian O'Sullivan is next. I think I might have clicked on the wrong one. Uh, yeah, Brian O'Sullivan. Hey, Brian. Good to see you. It's a great show. Thanks. Uh, really yeah. fun prompt. <laughs> it definitely was. I I enjoyed. It. I had fun with it. Um, and what you? Where'd you go? 
I'm probably a little bit more bitter than a lot of these. Still playful, but not exactly cheerful. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> now let's hear it. <laughs> okay. It's an Irish malediction after an Irish blessing. <clears throat> may the road rise up to meet you, and may it beat you with a blackthorn stick. May the wind be always at your back, and may it blow you far from here. May the sun shine warm upon your face, your pale Irish defenseless face. May the rains wash away your fields, and until we meet in hell, may the Lord hold you in the palm of his hand and clap. <laughs> that's great. And I would say, I think that's that's as funny as anything else. I think it's one of those, like, lovable, grumpy characters in the, you know, it's great, great, uh, great personality there. Thanks for sharing that, Brian. Thanks. I have to say, I love, because I, I read that before, because you posted it kindly in the Facebook group, and I love the poor Irish defenseless face. As somebody who has to wear sunscreen in the winter when it's cloudy, like, <laughs> I love that line. experience of that, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. I do not have that problem, which is nice. <laughs> All right, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Brian. Yeah, Brian O'Sullivan with an Irish malediction. Laura Berg is next in line. Hey, Laura. Hello. Hi, good to oh, see you today. So enjoyable. Let's see. Okay, so, well, the night is young. Ah, it is. And the, it's funny how, <laughs> how much these are appropriate for, <laughs> contextually within the show. So that's nice. The night is young. We've got uh, another 10 people, I think, left on the open line. They're prompt lines. Yeah. Okay. The night is young. Night is young. A polka bounces from her feet. She's surprised, mother of the bride, by her own laughter. A polka she doubted was still there, so long since she had danced one. Now she is night and she is young. Gone stiff back and knees as she hops, steps, steps into pirouettes that lift her skyward, as if into a chagall, all plum and azure, a shtetl winking below and floating beside her, a milk cow, a moon, a star. In the distance, her shining daughter, buoyed in white, sails toward the shore of groom. She even spots her father in his embroidered Polish vest, festive as he would have been, mother in his arms, so lively in their polka as each wedding's only once and the night still young, and memory a lonely place, until we wreath it in jasmine, adorn it with loved ones. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful poem. I love where you went with that. And there's so many great lines and images. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Laura. I love the personification of night as actually being young. That's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. That was Laura Berg with um, The Night is Young. And um, next we have uh, Stephen Horrell. Hi, Steve. Hi there. I think I've unmuted. There you go. Um, yep, we're good. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm. Uh, it's been a great evening, and uh, I'm somewhat intimidated by all these poems. Uh, and I'm really glad I didn't include my raining cats and dogs version because <laughs> it was not it was not nearly as good. Uh, well, there's anyway, no reason. So I'm sure I, these are great, and, uh, and I we're have, all friends too. So there's I no need to be intimidated. Four short ones uh -huh. that don't even make a page. Okay. So they're very short. Um, okay. So the first one is uh, shoot from the hip or lip. Be careful when you shoot from the lip. 
in an open carry state. <laughs> the next one is uh, up for grabs and knee jerk. He thought she was up for grabs. He got a knee jerk reaction. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, uh, the next one is called Black Sheep. And this is one that I just, it's sort of a prose thing. And I thought, oh, this could be a high bun, but I, I don't trust my haikus. And you always read them first. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is called Black Sheep. I studied hard at school. Sometimes I was bad, often cheeky. Siphoned water from a sink in the chemistry lab out the window into the typing class below. When caught for transgressions, gave phony names to the teachers I thought didn't know me. But Mr. Reacher with his yardstick always knew who. Cub Scout, Boy Scout, in school plays, rebel without a cause, cane mutiny court martial, never really stepped out of the stream. Though I was subpoenaed to testify at a grand jury regarding Slim on a sodomy charge. That went over well at home. Uh, how did I know what he was doing with my girlfriend's friend that strange night in Philly? Basically, though, I signed on the dotted line, dotted my I's and crossed my T's, never strayed too far until Vietnam. Only one in my high school class, Whisper Jet to Montreal. Uh, I think that is a hyphen. I think that whisper jet to Montreal kind of works. So, uh, yeah, I, I think so. Okay. The very last one's a real short one, too. Mm -hmm. It's called the, the Whole Nine Yards or the Whole Vine Yards. <laughs> in Naramata, B.C., heat dome plus polar freeze, Red Rooster shuttered their winery. Gone, the Whole Vine Yards. <laughs> That's great. So I love that. Uh, some humor, sort of one-liners surrounded by a really a serious poem that, that's touching. Thanks for sharing those, Steve. Okay, thanks. It's, it's been a really good evening. Yeah, it definitely has. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, that was Steve Harrell with uh, uh, four, you know, three short poems and then a longer one, too, from, uh, for the prompt. Thanks for sharing those, Steve. Uh, next up is uh, Monica Moo, Monica Dobos, Mooney, as we're calling her now. Hey, Monica, good to see you. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I cannot change that. My son changed the name, and I, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> um, I changed the title slightly, but I think it still, it still works. Okay. All right. Creamy Toscano in one hand, Coastal Shira in the other. I pace my room until the cows come home. Hmm. Heads down. Pails between waxed legs, they ease themselves in, each carrying little hay-covered Christmas bags between their ears. Augusta plops her five-month pregnant others into the red chaise lounge, not before pulling her white satin dress over the shanks. Sabina heads straight to the water filter and laps it empty. I look over my cat eyeglasses. Too much french fries at the mall, I presume? But she just belches scratches her dewlap. Apollonia props herself next to the green couch and sings The Barber of Seville to some invisible stars in the ceiling, more like water leaks, but why set her back on her heels? 
Tulia looks up how to drink without getting inebriated on my computer, and when I shoo her away, claiming I, unlike others, never peek over the picket fence, she bawls so ugly, I pull out the breathalyzer, and she charges for the backyard. When I ask the girls where midnight is, they moo and shrug. I wonder if they left the bull at the mall yet again, but their eyes blink large and innocent. Outside, the night smells munificent. Homes, water, urine. I take a deep breath in, and there they are, in the rosemary bushes. Midnight and jasmine, licking each other's ears, although who can tell where the bull ends, where the cat begins? I usher midnight in and summon all the bovines into a circle for the nightly prayer under the moody self-switch bulb. Oh, father up above in the hallway ceiling, Give us our daily hay, milk, bread, and wine. Bread, organic, sulfite-free, preferably. <laughs> That's great. I love that so much. <laughs> was, um, I think it was called um, Creamy, Creamy Toscano in one hand and Coastal Syrah in the other. I pace my room <laughs> until the cows come home. That is wonderful. I love Do you Do you, um, you know, work with cows or have cows? What is the cow connection? I just have I a love? cow obsession. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just love them. I think, you know, they're, they're pretty spiritual animals. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just fascinated with oh. cows. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> Definitely. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing that. Really fun poem again. Thanks for sharing Thank it, Monica. Thank you. Yeah, it was Monica Dobos uh, with another great cow poem. <laughs> Um, now let's go, we'll go back to the regular line, and let's go to Nate Jacob next. Howdy. Hey, Nate, yeah, good to see you. Good to see you. Great show tonight. Uh, there's Thank a few you. things I uh, would improve on, but really <laughs> I'm just leading into my poem. Don't think that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, so what have you got for us? So, uh, you know, I went ahead and wrote a poem in Spanish. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Translated it myself because... I, I lived in uh, Chile for a few years when I was younger, and uh, until I reached uh, fluency, people would speak to me like a child or an idiot. <laughs> uh, but once I reached fluency, they could use these idioms. And, and forever after that, I was always saying, but what do you mean when you say that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so they would always be saying, uh, oh, that guy's just looking for hairs in the soup. He's looking for something to complain about. Even uh, when That's a good one. I like that. Yeah. So that's what I wrote about. In Spanish, it's buscando pelos en la sopa. Hmm. Um, since before I can remember and forever on, I've wasted my life in search of the perfect meal. Whether made by gods or demons matters nothing. My only measure, that I be left with the urge either to get it on or to paint or to write better poetry, or maybe even that it take me up several notches in thought and speech. Maybe I can finally fit in among the movers and the shakers and thinkers. The sad part here is that my true nature, my real self, never even gets to the main dishes of these hopeful meals. And depending on the order of the plates, I may not even eat salad, cutting meals short at the first sign of supposed imperfection. I am forever looking for hairs in the soups. And even if I find none, I find it doesn't matter. 
I much prefer a hamburger anyways. <laughs> That's a great last line. Love that. And uh, yeah, excellent. And ironically, I am having soup for dinner, Nate. So hopefully <laughs> your hairs will not appear in my soup or else I'm going to have to send it back. <laughs> I had a hamburger for lunch. so it's all right. <laughs> I have to chime in and say I'm having a hamburger for dinner. There we yes. go. We're all set. And, and you are, I know. <laughs> One last thing. Hey, Tim, I can't help but notice that uh, Katie's shelves are empty and you were complaining about having too many books in your garage. Maybe we could work oh, out a deal. The problem is, uh, you know, being uh, <laughs> two thousand miles apart. Hey, he, I have two. I'm looking at right over in the corner. There are two bags of books that he brought with him that I've yet to fill the shelves with. All right. The kids' true. rooms come first, obviously. <laughs> yeah, only so many fit in the suitcase, but we'll keep, you know, sh- shuffling a few books over there at a time, and <laughs> they will be overstuffed in no time. It, that's for looks sure. clean for now. <laughs> yeah, enjoy this. <laughs> thanks guys alright thanks Nate that was great alright that was Nate Jacobs with um, Bascando Pelos and La Sopa which was great okay um, I didn't know he was bilingual that's really cool Nate um, and next let's go to uh, Clayton Clark hi, hi Clayton. there yeah good to see you I'm not going to say how are you <laughs> that's hi. okay you're free to say it you know there's nothing wrong and I, I would ask how you are too uh, we're all polite around here, but I love the background. Have you been in the pink room before? That's really cool. Yeah, I do. I, um, there's a lot of boys in my house, so <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> well, it's really the contrast of pink with books is really nice. Something to note: the white on pink with all the paper. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, this might be a first thought, worst thought poem, but. <laughs> We'll see what happens. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. If you invite a bear to dance, the lady in her blue bikini told her friend, who looked like brie cheese packaged in a black one-piece, that this guy she met online was always trying to get her goat. The black one-piece said, Sheesh, you mean he wants to pull the wool over your eyes? No, the goat. It's my goat he's always after, but you don't have a goat. That's just it. Well, I say don't take any wooden nickels from him. Say, what is it you're trying to do to me? I confided something serious to you that I'm not sure what to do about, because I really like this guy, and the world's getting harder to live in alone. Does he know how to milk a goat? I don't know. Why? I suggest you get a goat, give it to him, show him how generous you are, and he'll no longer need to steal the one you don't have. You're a genius. The sand began to burn their feet, so they ran to swim with the sharks. Oh, that's great. I love uh, how unexpected every turn in that, that poem is. Really fun, Clayton. Thanks for sharing it. Thank you. It was a great night. Yeah, thanks. Clayton Clark with If You Invite a Bear to Dance, which uh, that's one I've never heard before. Um, and I assume it is an idiom. That's interesting. Um, next, let's go to Julian Matthews. A couple people left. Like we have, hey, Julian, are you there? Hi. Hey, great to see you. Yeah. So my nine-year-old niece is insisting I read this poem because it has the idiom, kick the bucket in it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So here we go. The poem is called One Important Thing. Have you got it? Yep, I have it right there. Yeah. 
one important thing for animals is for their survival. So they migrate the world to get the things that are essential. We humans like their fortune tellers. We predict their futures. We say that they kick the bucket or say that they will mature. The very first things that came to Earth died because of space. But now in the current time, we say if they continue their race. Ah, that's excellent. That's why Eva Mary Beth, a nine-year-old niece, uh, one important thing. Yeah. I, yeah. She wants to make an appearance now. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, come on. They're waiting. <laughs> a little shy. Yeah. Give her a sec. She's very shy. Yeah, well, that's understandable. Yeah. And there she is. <laughs> well, that is an excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Eva. <laughs> Did she send that to uh, the Young Poets Anthology, too? Yeah, we'll we'll do that. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, thanks for sharing that, Eva. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, so that was, um, that was um, Eva Mary Beth with One Important Thing, Kicking the Bucket. A wonderful, fun poem. Thanks for sharing that, Eva. And Julian, too, for facilitating. And I believe that's going to wrap up. So let me see if there's any... Um, yeah, let's do... Okay. Yeah, that's going to wrap it up. I think the other ones that I have here are not poets I've seen today. So let's do, let's let's call it a night and let's talk back to Katie Dozier. Hey, Katie, how are you again? Good. I've been really enjoying the idioms. The only danger in doing this, I think, is that I start speaking in them unironically. <laughs> that's true. They do kind of, there's a lot that I didn't know too, which is interesting. Like, I mean, I, you know, you think that they're cliches that everyone's heard, but a lot of them feel kind of fresh to me, which is something I didn't expect. It's true. It's exciting to like, you know, it's funny too, um, with Nivedita's poem being Come Rain or Shine. My poem actually, I think, ended up going to Come Rain or Shine. I almost like tacked it onto the title, but then left it as a surprise. But it's it's funny how thinking in idioms makes you think of other idioms, too. Yeah, it's definitely true. Yeah, yeah once you start, you just can't stop. <laughs> like, it kind of gets stuck in your <laughs> it's head. It's in that idiom also. <laughs> I think so. And it just keeps going and going. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> anyway, so the prompt for this week, do you have it written down or do should I read it? You should read it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, next week's prompt is going to be right here. Move through. Oh, that was loud. Sorry. I don't know what happened. Move through an unnatural environment and describe it as though you were writing a nature poem. So if you look back at the, um, at the, uh, one of the poems that uh, Greg Kosmicki read, um, and I, I, I'm going to be able to find it. Which one, which page number was it? It was, um, oh, what was it called? If you want to flip back to it, it was, I have opened the front door to let the, in the birds songs. And, uh, <laughs> and that was the poem where he kind of did that a little bit. And I just thought it would be fun to do that some more. And mm-hmm. so that's the prompt. Um, and, uh, and, and also it takes, uh, his, his walking <laughs> use of poetry. So moving through an environment, um, uh, that, and describe it as though you're writing a nature poem, even though it's, it's like an unnatural man-made type environment i think that might yeah. be a fun thing to do i don't know what about you katie do you think i'm excited work? i mean i think that they're thinking about my week ahead there's a lot of potential to uh feel like I'm moving yeah, through. Some, yeah imagine like you know the 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 light stands at the airport is your <laughs> yeah you know? like know. trees you know the people, Ikea like yeah exactly the ikea forest <laughs> the behind you <laughs> we should also mention i think that 
This week on the Poetry Space, we're doing a really deep dive of looking at some poems, including one of Dick Westheimer's poems, which I think is going to be really interesting to look at and analyze on like a tiny, tiny scale of minutia, which I'm excited about. Yeah, because last week on the Poetry Space, we finally had that. We had to postpone it a week, but we had the episode talking about criticism and reviews of poetry and how there's not enough. And then we thought we'd try to put it into practice during a show. So we're going to pick four poems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I asked on my social media for some suggestions. Uh, we had some one mm-hmm. from Dick since he was there. We have some mm-hmm. others, too. And it's going to be a lot of fun to uh, dive deep for about 15 minutes each into some poems and sort of pick them apart. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. A little experiment for the poetry yeah. space this week. Yeah. yeah, I think it'll be really fun. And Stephen Allen, who, of course, read his fun, his fun sonnet tonight on the prop lines, joined us last week, too, to talk some about his you know, everything that he was talking about with illuminating things through writing reviews and things like that. So trying to bring some of that illumination mindset to the mm-hmm. poetry space on Thursday will be fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely will. And to find that, you can find either Katie or, or I's Twitter or X handles, I guess. Uh, it's Katie underscore Dozier or Timothy Green on Twitter. And uh, you don't need an account to listen, I believe, but you do need an account to participate. So if you'd like to participate and become a speaker there, it's like this, uh, you know, ground table kind of discussion about stuff. So you can comment. We'll post the poems on, on Twitter and Facebook ahead of time, too, on our personal things. So you can check that out. But I'm looking forward to that, Katie. And uh, looking forward to seeing you in person again tomorrow. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> After I write 8,000 poems on the plane. 8,000 poems on the plane. Yep, oh. You got <laughs> you to beat me. Because I had seven this time, so. Oh, that's easy to beat. I know, that but... is. <laughs> All right. Well, just sit by the wing so there's less turbulence. That's my <laughs> Okay. Well, thanks, Katie. Thank you. Hey, it was Katie Dozier, our prompt poems editor. Once again, the prompt for this week was to move through an unnatural environment and describe it as though you were writing a nature poem. So that should be a lot of fun. And now it's time for the Saiku. And uh, this was the article that I was looking at this week, if it loads. Okay, it is. The article is right here. It's from um, Nagoya University. I have no idea where that is, um, but it's this university right here. <clears throat> and the article is um, Shocking Discovery. Electricity from eels may transfer genetic material to nearby animals. And so these researchers found, they were wondering, there's this, this way that you can sort of open up and sort of unwind DNA and let it like be looser with an electrical signal. So they wondered if an eel could actually do that to a fish when it bites it and then add genetic material and sort of mix around its genes a little bit, you know, as another way of um, adding new genes and having gene transfer in nature, which is a weird concept. I don't even know why they even thought of it, <laughs> but they studied the eels and uh, made them bite fish and it actually happened and worked. And my first thought was, uh-oh, the, the you know, anti-vaccine people are going to run with this one. <laughs> and so, um, you know, because that gene, easy gene transfer is something that uh, is in the news a little bit. So I, uh, my haiku was, um, coming up, my haiku was this, eel DNA, even this topic charged. There's my Saiku, eel DNA, even this topic charged. That is the Saiku for this week, and that is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody, once again for a really fun episode, for participating in the prop lines. I'm Greg Karzmicki with a great guest, so casual about everything, but really beautiful and wonderful poems, as uh, Dick Westheimer pointed out with those great metaphors, too. So I hope you enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed all the uh, idiom poems, too. Now, next week's guest of the Rattlecast <clears throat> is going to be... Um, Gaetan's Grow. And uh, Gaetan is a um, 
a medical doctor at the University of Pittsburgh. And he doesn't have a book, but he uses poetry as part of his medical practice, as part of his particular teaching doctors on rounds. So he will do rounds and make them write poems, his med students, which is fascinating. He has a couple um, articles in medical journals about doing this and how much poetry adds to the experience of um, his medical practice. And so I thought it'd be really fascinating to talk to him about sort of the links between poetry and medicine. Um, he's also a wonderful poet, was in the uh, fall issue of Rattle. So um, that's going to be fun to talk to him, Gaten Scro, um, at Rattlecast number 224, uh, Monday, December 18th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And don't forget to bring your um, unnatural nature poems. <laughs> That'll be a lot of fun. We'll see you then. Hope you have a great week. In the meantime, and I'll talk to you later. Good night. <laughs>